Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. Today, it's great to chat with Kristen Jarrett on the podcast, a cognitive neuroscientist by training. Christian is deputy editor of Psyche, a global digital magazine that illuminates the human condition. Christian has written about psychology and neuroscience for publications across the world, including BBC Future, Wired, New York Magazine, New Scientist, GQ Italia, and The Guardian. He was the founding editor and creator of the British Psychological Society's Research Digest, presenter of their PsychCrunch podcast, and an award-winning journalist on The Psychologist magazine. His books include The Rough Guide to Psychology and Great Myths of the Brain. His most recent book is called Be Who You Want, Unlocking the Science of Personality Change. Kristen, so nice to finally meet you and talk to you. You too, Scott. Thank you for having me. Talk to you on the podcast, I should say. We've talked on Twitter DMs. <laughs> we have, yeah. And we, I think I, I wrote for you many years ago when you launched the Creativity Post. Wow, that, that was Wait. a lifetime ago. Yeah, I know. Yeah, so we go right back. We do. We do. Um, so is it true that I can be who I want? I think within reason, you can definitely become a better version of yourself and you, you can change yourself in ways to help you live according to your values and what, and what matters to you most in life. Okay. So um, I, I, that was my cheeky question, but I want to like <laughs> um, back up to like your childhood for a second. You said that when you were a child, you were characterized as too quiet by your teachers when you were when you were a teenager. Is that right? So how did you burst out of the shell when you started uh, university? Yeah, my teacher reports when I was at school, they all basically said the same thing, that I don't talk enough and I'm hiding in the shadows and uh, trying to get me to contribute more. Um, yeah, uh, which I think was true to an extent. Um, and yeah, when I went to university, well, I, I think one thing is uh, some of the crowd that I fell in with 
I, I made good friends from the beginning with a, a real out-and-out extrovert. And I, and, I, and I think that speaks to the fact that one of the strongest influences on our personalities is the people that we mix with. I also, I, I, I think I, you know, my, my own goals changed. I wanted to have fun when I arrived at university, um, and the, the whole media there was was encouraged a more sociable lifestyle. But I, I think the the fact that I was so influenced by some of the friends I had is is consistent with some theory, like um, and findings in in the psych research that our personalities are to a large degree affected by our relationships and the and the the personalities of our friends and so on rub off on us. And and also the kind of um, you know the kind of role you play in your friendship group. I think if if you're caricatured a certain way, it can make it, it can in, in especially in a way that you don't like. I mean, it can almost make you start to play a certain role and live up to your a certain reputation. So I think when I started university, you know, I had a whole, whole new set of friends, a new environment, and that helped me do what I wanted to do, which was ha- ha, you know. Uh, be more outgoing, be more gregarious. And yeah, that's, that's how I managed it at that time. But a little bit of alcohol probably helped as well. It does. And also living in England, I, um, this, this happened to me too. I, I broke out of my shell when I was in England. Um, yeah. And I was about 25 on a scholarship um, to Cambridge. <laughs> just to drop that there um, yeah. but, but um i i really i i i i went wild i i i became friends with this big like punk rocker looking like english british uh extrovert and yeah. uh we, we'd go you know out all the time and and i was like wow i can do this you know but uh but i i it didn't last too it didn't too, last too long i feel like my my introverted tendencies kept coming back but look let me ask you something you know about the biological aspect of this you know um, in the research that that you did for this book, um, what role did you find for biology and and uh, and temperament? Yeah, well, personality definitely gets beneath the skin, as they say. So I think often it feel personality can seem very abstract. Like, is it a real thing or is it just a description? And there are quite a few findings coming out now. On, I mean, the neuroscience of personality is a real burgeoning area. So you know, it's true. Yeah, strong introverts, you know, their brains will, if you scan their brains on a brain scanner, you'll find their brains really are more sensitive to stimulation, for example. If you compare like high scorers and neuroticism who suffer, you know, who experience highs and lows of, of emotion compared with someone low on neuroticism uh, who's very emotionally stable, even down to the level of the myelin- myelination of nerve fibers you kind of see these differences between these groups. Um, even things like um, gut bacteria, like people high in neuroticism tend to have more so-called bad bacteria in their guts. Um, things like that, uh, inflammate, science, market, biological markers of inflammation are higher and people lower in conscientiousness, people higher in neuroticism. So. You know, whether it's brain activity or brain structure or your, you know, your um, inflammation in your body and your gut bacteria, all these, all these different levels, you've got personality manifesting at these different levels. Yeah, sure. How did you come across uh, my colleague Colin DeYoung's work at all? Uh, it doesn't ring a bell. What, what, what she found? Um, it, it, his, his name's Colin, 
and he okay. uh he Colin DeYoung really leading leading the charge in the field of personality oh, neuroscience. Young, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. I I have, yeah. DeYoung. I think he's I think I cite his work in the book. Oh nice. I'll, I'll have to tell yeah, yeah. him. I'm actually think, I'm actually talking I, to him today for the podcast. Oh, yeah. oh brilliant. Yeah, I think he did a kind of a review, a neat review of the kind of neuroscience of Correct. personality. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I was in that lab in grad school. That was the lab I was in and he was the postdoc in the lab. Um, yeah, really, really awesome guy. Deserves a lot, a lot of credit. Uh, so there's lots of, you know, the, the, with the mis- unpacking the mysteries of personality science is, uh, it's like, well, we could, there's so many different entryways, you know. So we just discussed biology a little bit in the fact that biology doesn't, doesn't make destiny though, right? I think that's important, important to point out too. You know, this per, yeah. this nurse, yeah. Oh, well, I mean, the, the biology of personality, one thing it points to is, how important our health and um, uh, kind of sport behaviors are. It, you know, if you want to change your personality for the better, uh, so you, you, it might not seem directly related to personality, but by working on your physical health, you can actually benefit your personality. Yeah, yeah, that's that that's very true. Um, do you do you work on your physical health? Um, if anything, I'm probably a little bit prone to, addic- you know, being a bit addicted. To- <laughs> I'm one of those people who doesn't like it, if, you know, if I miss the chance. So yeah, um, yeah, I'm, I, I, I like. Uh, we- I'm guilty of one of the being one of the annoying people who have joined the Peloton family. <laughs> <laughs> oh. In the lo- yeah, I thought about that. I thought about that that Peloton world. Um, Okay, so there are a lot of things that can influence personality. Uh, what about like um, uh, that? The whole research literature on uh, changing roles. Like, if you go to a new job, or and or you like change your identity. You know, your work identity changes. Um, that could be one thing, right? Definitely, yeah. That's one of the sort of strongest theories in the personality change literature and uh, better supported theories, I would say. Yeah, social investment theory. I think they, I think they call it. So yeah, um, the jobs, the, the roles we take on in life do shape us. We we get feedback on how we're expected to behave, and so yeah, if you begin a new job, especially I think if you find it rewarding and you enjoy it, and you're given clear feedback on how you, what is expected of you, I think you're bound to see increase in uh, trait conscientiousness. And that, that's what you see with graduates when they get their first jobs, their conscientiousness typically increases. Um, after a job promotion, you tend to see people get a, a, an increase in trait conscientiousness. And I mean, uh, more extreme examples would be things like people who go into special forces training or um, military training. You know, then you get to see even, even sharper increases and maybe lower neuroticism, that kind of thing. So. At what leadership positions again you get these kind of changes so yeah definitely i think it doesn't have to be work of course but i think the roles that we take on in life because because they de- demand certain things of us and, and if we are motivated and we're rewarded for certain kinds of behavior because a lot of personality is ultimately built on the habits of our our thinking and our emotions and our behavior if we are rewarded for behaving in certain ways over a period of time it's going to shape us over time yeah ultimately changing our personalities yeah but didn't um like the behavioral genetics uh, research kind of change our ideas about what exactly has the biggest influence on our on personality differences as we age 
like you know judith rich harris's book um was seminal in in saying well it, it, it our peers you know have a lot more influence their parents that's yes, what she uh, said yeah what what do you yeah. think about that yeah yeah i i think that's i think that's right i think of course there's a whole industry built around you know how to parent how to be a good parent and it, it can which i think can be very anxiety provoking for parents and yeah, the research, a lot of it suggests parents' influence on their kids' personality besides what they hand down in, in, in their genes is relatively modest, exactly as you say. It seems to be unique experiences outside the home, including peer influences, uh, which have more, more of an influence. So I don't think that's to say, of, obviously, parenting is ir irrelevant, but I think it's more, it comes down to more like, are you a, uh, uh, an authoritative parent are you are you warm and encouraging and consistent that will be beneficial to your child's personality versus um are you authoritarian are you cold and distant uh, and inconsistent you know and um i think those two broad things you can you you could say that the um the warmer encouraging style is beneficial for a child's personality and the cold distant inconsistent is harmful but beyond that yeah, I don't think parents kind of can, for a second, kind of deliberately sculpt their kids uh, to have certain kind of personalities. And I've seen, I've seen for myself. I have uh, seven-year-old twins, and I've seen for myself the limits, the, li <laughs> the limits of uh, parental influence. It's amazing to see what they, what you know, what children bring to the equation in their own, obviously their own genetic endowment that. Br br what personality dispositions and proclivities they have that they start out with. But if things are too extreme, you really can mess mess them up, right? Like, like what's the research on divorce, on on uh, and, and the, that effect on personality? Yeah. So um, when I say the influence of parents is relatively modest, yeah, uh, obviously extremes of uh, you know neglect and um abuse and that kind of thing is is going to have no question harm, harmful impact especially on as you you know as you know on for example attachment a person's attachment through their life uh so a divorce i, I don't think there are there's like a, a specific consistent outcome it, you know it will depend on how well the parents navigate their separation and how supportive they are of the kids and so on so i don't think parents should agonize about that too too much but more extreme forms of uh maltreatment for children unfortunately um can lead especially yeah to attachment problems and as i say you know children bring their own uh side to the equation so you you, you i'm sure you'll have heard of the concept of orchid children of course. um of course. yeah so there are probably, uh, you know, um, a minority of kids will be extra sensitive to a difficult upbringing, difficult circumstances. Um, the majority of so-called dandelion kids um, will fare better in difficult circumstances. They'll, they'll, they'll be relatively impervious, whether things are incredibly good or terribly bad, whereas the, the orchid kids, their personalities and their mental health will suffer more in bad times but if they are if they have a supportive loving nourishing upbringing they will thrive even more than the dandelion kids 
So you 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 get these inter it's an interaction between one one's genetics and environment through upbringing. It's it, it's the two, as you know, uh, interacting with one another. Is that true though? Because is that true among dand, uh, dandelions though? Uh, you just you just said there are some that, regardless of the environment, tend to be um, really upright and not affected as much. So within reason, so, I think. Yeah, so within reason. maybe there's the whole point there. I think was really cool. A good point. There's individual differences in the extent to which genes and environment yeah. interact. Yeah, that's right. So, uh, but the in the sense that if you if your genetic disposition inclines you to orchid uh kind of phenotypes yeah. yeah then then the environment is you're more sensitive to the environment right 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 yeah, but then the, the yeah. but then the dandelion yeah is not as uh not as, not yeah. as there's more of an inner core there so i think yeah. i think there's there's even just more nuance than than just kind of like the usual saying like well of course environment and genes interact which they do which they do you yeah. know but but i think it's i think what you pointed out is even more interesting though is that there's yeah. individual differences in the extent to which they interact um yeah it's not the same for all of us yeah the the role of the environment environment is more important for some than others and we tend to talk about it in terms of children but of course it lasts through life yeah yeah and another really interesting part of that research is that uh, the very same uh, environment that uh, if, if you're if you have the kind of temperament where you can be uh, swayed very easily, if you are raised in a, a very malnourished environment, you can you develop anxiety. You can develop you're more likely to develop anxiety like traits. But if you grow up in a uh, supportive environment, you're more likely to develop curiosity and exploration like traits. So um, that's pretty important, you know, findings there, you know, you, I'm sure you read the summer camp study on that, finding that these kids, depending on their, their genotype, depending on um, how they were raised and, 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 and treated, you know, it, it, it could go in two very different directions. Yeah. And I, I think it's, you know, it's so important because it's, it's a reminder that people aren't, you know, they're not stuck their personality isn't sort of a one permanent thing it, it it can be channeled in different directions depending on their experiences in life and how supported or not they are and obviously as we get older we can we can start to be more intentional about that for ourselves yeah so are there happy events in life that don't necessarily translate to positive effects on personality <laughs> yeah, well, uh, we've been speaking about parenthood, so one that springs to mind immediately, yeah, is so th that that whole social investment theory to do with the the roles we take on, shaping us in a beneficial ways. You would think becoming a parent with all the demands that entails would be like a, the perfect training camp for trait conscientiousness. Uh, but if anything, if anything, uh, the research seems to show uh, it goes off the cliff. You know, uh, parents' personalities tend to, uh, in some ways, you could say, uh, suffer after, in the immediate aftermath of parenthood. Self-esteem. There's this research with mothers suggests self-esteem goes down, neuroticism goes up, conscientiousness goes down, all this kind of stuff. 
Um, so it's a joyful, happy time, but um, it's obviously not easy. And I, I think I, I don't think there's a clear explanation in the literature. My own take on it would be that the social investment theory research is based on when you have a role where the demands on you are very clear of what is expected of you. And you get these kind of rewards for behaving in in the, the ways expected of you. I think with parenthood, it's just such a messy, overwhelming uh, time. It's mm-hmm. it's too confusing and uh, and chaotic, and it's not clear what's the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do. Plus, factor in sleep deprivation and um, such a radical change in lifestyle and freedom and all these things. I don't think it, when you, if you pause and think about it, it's not so surprising that it, it, it comes with these at least short lived uh, challenges for personality. Yeah. Well, what about dandelions? Can they, do they deal with it better? Dandelion parents. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's something I don't, I don't think anyone's looked at that. Like as no. far as I know, I yeah, haven't seen it. Yeah. Like, what is a orchid child? What kind of parent do they become? Or I know, I'm curious. Yeah, yeah, uh, and yeah, may, maybe you would imagine a dandelion parent would maybe cope better, or they'd be more show more trait stability, maybe. Uh, whereas maybe an orchid parent would, depending on how things are going, show more vary, you know, more variation. Um, of, I mean, of course, um, parenting is very different for different people, depending on their own circumstances. So, you know, whether they're jug- juggling work or not, and whether they have support, you know, you have a supportive partner or not. And, and of course, um, some children, although we all want to think our kids are bundles of joy, some kids are more of a challenge to raise than others. <laughs> well, well, you know, but there's a, a strong genetic component there. so. The difficult yeah, children, yeah. you're probably a difficult parent. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and then there's an interaction. So the two yeah. end up being very difficult with each other. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. That's why I think, yeah, you can get some difficult child parent dynamics unfolding for sure. I think, yeah, you know, high trait neuroticism, it's, it's going to be handed down. And then, yeah, you can have all sorts of fireworks. What is the lemon juice personality test? <laughs> uh, well, this goes this goes back to Hans Ising, and you know he he had this theory that the, the key difference between introverts and extroverts is to do with their um, how sensitive they are to stimulation. So the the lemon juice personality test is uh, you use a Q-tip and you put lemon you, you hang it from a thread and you put lemon juice on one side and. Uh, you, you put the the uh, plain side in your mouth for a short time, switch it around, put the lemon juice side in your mouth for a short time, and then dangle the Q-tip and see how evenly balanced it is. And the idea is introverts being much more sensitive to stimulation, they, they salivate a lot more in response to the lemon juice, which makes that side heavier. So the idea being if you're an introvert, the lemon juice side of the Q-tip will dangle down lower. <laughs> by the way i i've tried this uh in a talk on personality in a, in a london bar oh. and it, it 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 was a disaster <laughs> it wasn't it didn't work out 
<laughs> I mean, if I thought about it more carefully, um, I should have known. I mean, imagine go. It, it, people don't want to put a Q-tip in their mouth in public and start mucking. About. There, there are issues. Even pre-pandemic, there are issues of cleanliness, understandably, and all that kind of stuff. People don't particularly want to muck about with putting things in their mouth and dangling from threads and things. So yeah, it didn't go too well. It became more a test, I think, of um, extroversion, probably, who, <laughs> who was willing, uh, or, um, well, oh no, it's meant to be a test of extroversion. I mean, maybe more a test of conscientiousness, you know, uh, how squeamish. Yeah, yeah, like how squeamish people were. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, you know, Heinz, Hans Eisenk is a bit of a controversial figure now, uh, a lot of his work has been found yeah. to not, uh, you know, replicate. Um, and uh, I think he had abhorrent views on certain issues. But anyway, um, it doesn't mean... Er- it, 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 no one's all good and no one's all bad, is what I like to say. That's true. Yeah, too. yeah. It's a, bit, it's a bit of fun, really. I, I don't think it's... Um, I wouldn't take the lemon juice test very seriously. It's not a contrast controversy, as you would say. <laughs> it's not a, this one the lemon juice test is not a no. is one of his least controversial things uh okay well you know this whole idea of cancel culture right that like um we should cancel people who uh because they've done something stupid at one point in their life or you know we dig up something they did in high school and it's like as a 50 year old cancel them now, what do you? How does that kind of mentality dovetail with your work research on personality change and the idea that maybe people can actually grow over their life? Well, it, the research and thesis that I put forward in my book is uh, directly against cancel culture. I would say, because I suppose I'm all in. I would be all in favor of giving people a second chance. So I, I mean, I profile various public figures in the book who had, you know, real lows in life or did bad things in their life and who turned managed to turn themselves around and change their personalities for the better. Um, one would be, uh, for example, Majid Nawaz, who, I mean, he, do, he does remain a controversial figure, but, you know, he was a one-time uh, extremist, mm-hmm. uh, Islamist, you know, uh, in, in favor of um, killing homosexuals. And um, he, he went around with a knife as a teenager with a knife strapped to his back. Uh, he ended up um, jailed for trying to foment terrorism and, and what have you. He, uh, he, he had this experience in, in, in jail where he, he educated himself um, intensely. He read. He read widely. He he kind of changed his uh, um, values and goals in life, and he re- he became that same. You could maybe call it, you know, extreme extroversion and almost obsessive drive that he had. He re- he he channeled it into being a force for promoting uh, peace and tolerance. So he he co-founded the the world's first kind of counter extremism organization well he he's a per i mean they, they may well still be people who would like to cancel him but you you could say if he'd been cancelled as a young a uh, very young man then 
the world would never have benefited from his peace work. Uh, but of course, there are less extreme examples than that. And yeah, so I would, and well, every you know, everyone makes mistakes. We all make mistakes. So I, and we all have the potential to to grow and improve ourselves and become better versions of ourselves. So I, yeah, unfortunately, the cancel culture is, you know, anathema to all that. Thanks for not canceling me for fumbling your bio. <laughs> <laughs> I was tempted. <laughs> I know, I know. You, I saw you. <laughs> um, well, uh, what do I want to talk about next? Well, uh, here's something that um, a topic that I that I that I that I'd like to discuss. You know, what about people with personality disorders? Don't they have unique challenges um, in trying to change their personalities? Yeah, they do. So, well, for a long time, personality disorders were considered untreatable. It was almost part of the definition. So, yeah, narcissistic personality disorder or um, borderline personality disorder. There, there, there are quite a lot, of, quite a lot of them. Antisocial personality disorder. Yeah. So, it's been a controversial area in psychiatry and clinical psychology actually for, for a number of years over, over whether such people can be helped or help can help themselves or can change themselves. There, there is, I think, you know, I, I looked at the whole literature and I think there's growing evidence that even you know, these people who have particularly problematic personalities can, can be helped and can help themselves. There are ways. But what are the new challenges? Like, like for instance, if you have narcissistic personality disorder and you think there's nothing that needs to be changed, let's say you think you're perfect. You think that you're the best. You're winning. You're winning. Why would you want to change if you're winning? But let's say you're, you're wreaking havoc everywhere you go. What do you do with that person? Or how does that, you know, what, what, what's going on there? Yeah, that... There are unique challenges with such people, and I, I would say, I have to say, um, intentional, deliberate personality change is always going to be so much harder, if not impossible, if a person does not want to change. Um, it almost goes without saying. So you, you're quite right. If someone is does not have insight into there being anything wrong, um, that is such a huge hurdle to get over in the first place. I think there are the question of insight, you know, in different personality, in different personality disorders, and it, well, mental health problems in general is a fascinating one. I, I think there are some people with personality disorders who will have a degree of insight, and so you can you can build on that. You know, you can you can work on that and build on that. There will be people with narcissistic personality disorder, for example. I'm not not saying all of them by any means, but especially over time, they they might come to see that their way of relating to others and the world is harming them over time. Actually, they, they ex will experience more stress, uh, you know, in their life, stressful events than average. They will see that they might thrive early in their social relationships. That tends to be the pattern. People, we tend to like narcissists early on. They make a splash at the beginning. <laughs> yeah. We, and then we tire of them very quickly. And, you know, um, some narcissistic pe people who score high in narcissism will will recognize that over time and they might want help and they they can be helped. Besides that, it, it, without insight, 
you know, there are some devious ways to try and work with people with narcissism or um, psychopathy because you, you, you can try and play things to their motivation. You know, you, if you, you could try and show them that it's in their interest, for example, to work on certain skills that, such as um, their empathy, for example. And if, you, and if you can show them that by uh, increasing their empathy for others, they um, will be more successful, you know, in their goals, even though they're remaining kind of selfish, you, you're, you, you can sneak um, under the radar, you can, you can sneak things like empathy training <laughs> and so on to them, which of course, if, the, um, if things like the empathy training is successful, it, it, will, have, uh, it, it will help lower narcissism and psychopathy for example for example so that there's a way of framing the interventions in a, in a more tantalizing way for people who are more self-interested and self-centered that's somewhat hopeful <laughs> <laughs> um well so are there u.s presidents that uh are are, are u.s presidents in general more likely to display psychopathic traits and if so why <laughs> Uh, yeah, there is evidence to suggest they are, especially well, especially a sub trait of psychopathy called uh, fearless dominance. Mm. Uh, there is so um, uh, that's the kind of it, it's a trait that's also found um, at high levels in, for example, surgeons and uh, special forces operatives and, and and that kind of thing. So that the one way of looking at it is as extremely low neuroticism, like almost um, unnerving levels of emotional stability. So you, you can you can see why it might be beneficial to a president or a, or a surgeon who has to make life or death decisions. Or um, yeah, well, in the case of a, a president, obviously make decisions that are going to affect millions of people. In a, in a case of a surgeon, you know, cut, uh, slicing with a scalpel into someone's body, and so it 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 it's the subtrait or facet of psychopathy that is probably most associated with with what some re researchers call like successful psychopathy or success. They they talk about so-called successful psychopaths. I mean, any of these traits in isolation of the others um, are not are not the whole. Right. I mean, like you can have, you can score high. Let's say you, the only the only facet of psychopathy you score high in is fearless dominance. It doesn't mean you score high in psychopathy, right? It just means you score high in fearless dominance. I guess on average, if you, you know, if you took a large sample of people, you would expect the fearless dominance to correlate with the other sub traits as well. On well, a, I hope on our surgeon isn't a psychopath. <laughs> <laughs> I hope my surgeon just scores high in fearless dominance, uh, coupled with compassion. That would be the ideal. Yeah. There, 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 there was a journal paper looking at psychopathy in surgeons um, that, it, you know, suge suggesting it is fine. higher than, yeah, higher than average in surgeons, you know. Um, really? Yeah. And. Holy cow. CEOs, uh, you know, psychopathy is supposedly on average higher among CEOs. And, um, but yeah, you, if you break it down into these sub traits, yeah, the the idea would be that you you can 
you don't score uniformly across all the different subtraits, but you, you could, in, in theory, you have some individuals who have a profile where they're, they're high on the fearless dominance and not so high on the less favorable uh, subtraits. But I mean, some of this is, contra- we, I know you all know this, you know, people argue about how finely we can break down these different traits you know and how much it makes sense to talk about subtraits or not and and what have you you know some people are skeptical about the dark triad uh at all uh, no. <laughs> they're skeptical of the dark triad yeah the dark tri- have they had never <laughs> met an asshole before <laughs> well i think they would lump it into like low agreeability uh for example they, they would you know collapse it into the big five some people who well have, you know, more, you mean that more more likely collapse into the hexaco, honest humility factor. Yeah, well, that's the yeah for those who favor the sixth, yeah, the bit sort of the sixth trait. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. So, um, what is a challenge mindset versus a threat mindset? Oh well, a challenge mindset is uh, th- this is uh, this pertains to when you um, have. Uh, an event uh, ahead of you uh, that you're fretting about uh, that is um, very demanding. So it could be a sports event, giving a, a public speech, um, doing a podcast interview, whatever it might be. And um, a challenge mindset is, if you have a challenge mindset, you you see it as within your abilities. Uh, within your cap- you you believe your capabilities exceed what is going to be demanded of you. You see it as a learning experience. Um, you see it in terms of what you're going to get out of the experience. Um, a threat mindset is like the reverse of all those. So threat mindset, you you worry that you don't have the skills and abilities to cope. Uh, you you worry about what the bad things that are going to happen to you out of this situation uh you know all that can go wrong that would be the threat mindset so it, it, i encountered this uh way of looking at things in the realm of sports psychology i think that's where it originates i'm not i'm not sure so a sports psychologist might work with an athlete to try and encourage them to have a challenge mindset when they have a, an event coming up versus a threat mindset and um there are, there are various things you can do to try and encourage yourself to have one mindset or another. Um, for example, in, in, in the keep, keeping the sports con, context, athletes, for example, can perform certain rituals before an event to help them feeling, you know, somewhat familiar and in control so that they're not feeling fearful as uh, to encourage the, those feelings of confidence and, and that they can cope. And obviously a sports psychologist can coach an athlete to try and see it as a, you know, a learning opportunity rather than seeing it as, you know, what are you, what am I going to lose today in this race? You know, what's going to go wrong for me today in this race or this to giving this speech or, or, or whatever it might be, you can think, well, what am I going to learn? You know, what am I going to learn? I'm going to, I'm going to, um, grow from this experience rather than suffer from it. And yeah, I, I mention it in my book um, because I think, f- for example, 
I think extroverts are probably inclined more to see things as a challenge than a threat. They're more optimistic by nature. So they naturally see things as a chance that, you know, they're, they're hungry for reward and they see things as a, as a opportunity for reward and pleasure. They go seeking that out and they're, they're willing to take risks. And I suppose for those of, those of us with more introverted inclinations, I, I see the challenge versus threat mindset as a way of maybe trying to come out of your shell a little bit trying to be a bit more willing to take risks and have a, a more positive, optimistic attitude towards opportunities that come your way in, in, in life. I mean, clearly neuroticism plays a huge role and it, it strong, it's strongly correlated with the threat mindset. Yeah, uh, exactly. So you got the, where extroverts are drawn, are drawn to reward. Yeah. You've got um, neurotic, neurotic people are very sensitive to and fearful of punishment. Yeah. And things going badly. Yeah. But there are two different dimensions. So you, you can get cases like me where I'm a neurotic extrovert. <laughs> yeah, you, you can. I know. And I, and I think that that's probably not recognized enough. No. Um, it's the personality interactions that are much more interesting to me than any of these one dimensions uh, in context of the others or devoid of context of the others. Uh, I actually wrote an article for scientific American called confessions of a neurotic extrovert. So, Did you? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, our, the mo our motto, the motto of neurotic extroverts is um, uh, act first and then worry immediately. <laughs> 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 I like that. Yeah, I, I I sometimes wonder if I'm, yeah, like rather than being an introvert, like maybe I'm a kind of an um a neurotic narcissist or something, you know, like yeah. a vulnerable narcissist. Yeah, yeah, like I'd really like to have more attention and be out there more, but I'm just yeah, my neuroticism is too high, and I find it <laughs> I find it too scary. <laughs> I've read a lot about vulnerable narcissism, in it, which is mostly a disorder of neuroticism. It really is, yeah. Um, uh, uh, I think a lot of people, like I wrote about that in my book, Transcend. I wrote, about, I had a checklist for vulnerable narcissism. A lot of people were like emailing me, being like, "That's me." <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. So, well, I think we're all look. We're all there's a fun, something fundamentally human about these um, all of these personality traits. I think it's important to recognize that um, they're all continuums. And we all lie somewhere on this continuum. So we can at least identify moments when we've been introverted, moments we've been extroverted, moments we've been bold psychopaths, and moments we've been, you know, uh, less bold, uh, you know, moments when we've been uh, conscientious. Not, so it, it's, we're just talking about density distributions, right? Yeah. I, and actually, I, I remember you, you describe it in those terms in your book, Transcend. Yeah, yeah, and I, I really, yeah, I really like that way of looking at it because, as you say, it's like we all have these little. Uh, uh, rather than seeing ourselves as one type, we we have all the different types within us, but we just vary in how often we express them. You know, and yeah. I think part of intentional personality change is it can be a, a question of just shifting those distributions. It doesn't have to be a profound change. 
you know, from one extreme to the other, from black to white, you know, um, it, it, it can be just uh, shifting the distributions a little bit could have, I think, massive consequences for your life. So, I mean, that's one way I've looked at it with myself is trying to, for example, increase my willingness to take risks. So to be an extrovert, to be to be that kind of low, low neuroticism extrovert a little bit more often. And who knows if that makes the difference between you having the willingness to go up to someone, you know, at a networking event or um, if it makes the difference to you accepting an invitation one day that you might not have done if you hadn't been working on your personality development. I, I think the consequences could could be meaningful, even with quite subtle shifts, as you put it, in that kind of distribution of of your behavior uh, profile, you know, uh, in life. Okay, that, maybe that's a good place to end this this episode today. What do you think? Did that feel that felt good, uh, Christian? I really appreciate you writing this book and. Uh, and just shining a spotlight on the fact that personality change is possible, not uh, unlimited, unlimited, <laughs> like some <laughs> self-help gurus claim, but yeah. within the realm of science, scientific uh, parameters, um, yeah. uh, still shining an important spotlight on this topic. And I wish you all the best in this book tour. Oh, well, thank you very much, Scott. And, uh, you know, my book. It's, uh, you know, I'm standing on the shoulders of giants in the sense that, you know, I'm, I'm drawing on the work of personality psychologists and researchers uh, like yourself, and you're one of them. And so I'm really grateful for all the work you've done, and I'm really grateful to talk to you today. Thanks, Christian. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's better H E L P dot com. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org.
If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA.